The Coast Guard is famous for its field units up and down the coasts. They're the ones who launch search and rescue missions when fishing boats capsize or canoes drift into shipping lanes. But the Government Accountability Office has found the field units often don't have the emergency in food and water for themselves. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues, Heather McLeod. Ms. McLeod, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. And you looked at, just to be clear, this is not food and water for people that are rescued, but food and water for the rescue queues themselves who live or at least work for long shifts in harm's way, potentially. Indeed. This is Coast Guard personnel themselves. And we looked at some of the more remote Coast Guard stations to determine the adequacy of their emergency supplies for themselves. And where are some of the remote ones? I mean, you think of them like in, you know, Rehoboth Beach, where you can get off and have some fries down the boardwalk. But this is some areas that might be a little bit more austere. Yes, these can be really small beach towns. It can be remote stations in Alaska, Florida, Oregon, really across the country. And what prompted this query? That seems like a very arcane topic, whether field units of the Coast Guard can, you know, take care of themselves in an emergency. Yeah, well, we actually did a report last year looking at Coast Guard preparedness for tsunami evacuation in the Pacific Northwest. So this is mainly the Washington, Oregon inundation zone. And through our work in that area, we saw that the Coast Guard personnel might not be prepared for emergencies themselves. Congress followed up and asked us to look at this issue more specifically. So we did this study. It was a quick study, but we found the issue pretty readily. How many field stations does the Coast Guard have? Do we know? I can't say off the top of my head, but they are located across the country. And these can be a range of stations from a handful of people to dozens of people. Sure. And across the nations is accurate because there are inland waterways where the Coast Guard operates also, correct? For sure. For sure. The Great Lakes being a great example of that. And does the Coast Guard have a policy over what should be stored and stowed for those field personnel? So while they have a policy, we found that the policy is actually unclear to the stations and the Coast Guard personnel. And the, and the reason for that is just the interpretation of it. Can we buy emergency supplies for ourselves? Can we hold water, you know, in our facilities in case of emergencies? It's actually something that we see federal government wide. There's some questions around procurement on these issues. But basically, we saw a range of sort of understanding of the policy. Yeah, I remember a lot of organizations kind of thought about storing in supplies in the aftermath of 9-11 when people were trapped, you know, for a while or some sort of a disaster they thought could keep people in, riots and so on. So the policy is unclear then whether they should have this. Right. And most units that we talked to did not have emergency supplies. Some of the areas, you know, where you would expect perhaps where there's more frequent hurricanes or events like that, that the personnel do have those supplies and have looked into it. But other stations that don't have these no notice events very frequently just didn't have supplies. Just to make it explicit, then the danger here is that people in the water, dangling from a helicopter, operating a boat to rescue people themselves could be hungry and thirsty. Yeah, it's a case where the Coast Guard personnel themselves become the victims of, you know, a natural disaster, man-made disaster, other kind of event like that. 
We're speaking with Heather McLeod. She's Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And so you did a survey. Tell us who you asked and what you found out. Yeah, so we reached out to some of the more remote stations, 32 interviewed and conducted a survey and just asking them what supplies they had on hand, whether they thought they could have supplies on hand, how they would purchase supplies, whether they talked about having supplies, and we're able to gather some really great information. A lot of individuals that are in charge of procurement, we found, didn't know about the procurement policies, thought that having emergency supplies were prohibited, or just didn't know. And this all relates back to unclear policies. Because in the report, there is a picture of one location that has stacks of, like I don't know what's in them, but look like buckets, plastic buckets. And next to that are pallet loads of bottled water. So that place clearly has one view of the policy, but some places have nothing. Absolutely. Some places have nothing. And some places honestly don't have the amount of space that it requires. You know, this photo is taken in a place that actually has the room to have those supplies and they did proceed to acquire them. Right. So the stations vary physically. Some of them might be just like a little hut somewhere type of thing with a boat docked outside. Some might be a warehouse type of operation. For sure. For sure. And did you visit any of them? Sometimes GAO staff visits those places in person. Did your folks go to any of them? We do get out into a number of Coast Guard facilities. And yes, we did on this one as well. And did you find them, maybe this is outside the scope of the report, but were they in generally good repair? even if they were cramped in some cases? (laughs) Well, the Coast Guard infrastructure is an ongoing issue for the Coast Guard. We've noted in the past that there's a $2.6 billion backlog on Coast Guard infrastructure facilities. This includes these small boat stations, docks, everything on that side. The Coast Guard is trying to make some progress in updating their infrastructure, but there is a huge and ongoing backlog related to these stations. Okay, well, getting back to the food and water issue, then you made some recommendations, and what were they? And I'm assuming they're predicated on the idea that whatever the policy is, or however vague it might be, you feel that the Coast Guard field stations should have emergency food and water stored in there. Absolutely. And the good news is that the Coast Guard does have policies and that from our perspective, if they updated these policies to clarify them and then disseminated them out to the Coast Guard stations in the field, that would really help in this area. And that was the basis of two of our recommendations that they update and clarify their policies related to emergency supplies update the policies related to procurement, as well as they conduct assessments of the risk around these events that might cause them to need these supplies. So the Coast Guard agreed with all of our recommendations and provided us some timelines to implement them, including by next year, this time next year, they plan to update their policies and conduct the assessments. And then the procurement policy is going to take a little bit longer, but just a couple years out. Yes, because there has to be money for this in there, even though it might be a small amount of money per station, when you add up all the field units, it's some real dollars then, possibly. For sure. And the material has to be rotated. I mean, if you don't use the food in 18 months or something, you probably have to replace it. Yes. 
Okay, well, let's hope they listen here. Heather McLeod is Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, 
calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause, and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely casts the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them re- really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, 
Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure's mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.